I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week, chatting to the multi-award winning immensely successful crime writer Steve Kavanagh. Uh, He tells the stories of the lawyer Eddie Flynn and he's back with a brand new book. It's called The Devil's Advocate. You can hear about why he's not been able to get into his ideal routine uh, almost ever. Uh, Also about the Masterclass series that he's constantly learning from and that's really kept him going through lockdown. Uh, And we talk about what happens when he tries to plot uh, but never quite fancies it. Uh, I just couldn't plan out what could what could possibly happen. It just didn't come to me, I and mean, whatever ideas I had didn't feel, you know, real. So it's just it just my brain just doesn't work that way. I just, I for me it's much easier and it's much more exciting to be able to write it, you know, to make it all up as I go along. You know, some people say well, I wait for the muse to come to me and all this stuff. Or I wait for characters to talk to me, and I'm like, no, it's, it's, I make it all up as I go along. That's what I really mean. There is more on the way with Steve Kavanagh in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. Uh, my name's Writer's Routine. Thank you for finding us. Uh, if you've not followed us yet, uh, give that a go wherever you get your podcasts. Then all these chats that we bring you every week, twice a week really, with the best authors around, then they automatically download to wherever you get your shows from, wherever you're listening right now. Uh, this is where we talk to the best authors around about how they get stuff done, about how they get to work, how they take ideas from their head and get them down onto the page. This week we're with Steve Kavanagh. <laughs> Let me just read to you a, a list of his accolades. His first book, debut novel, The Liar, uh, won the CWA Gold Dagger Award. The follow-up to that, 13, won the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year. Twisted and 50-50, they were both Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers. His new book, The Devil's Advocate, has just been named one of the best crime and thriller books of the year uh, by Waterstones. And apparently they know what they're talking about. Uh, It's another Eddie Flynn book. It's all about Andy Dubois. It's weird, isn't it, when you you write stuff down and you only pronounce it how you've read it in your head. I'm going with Andy Dubois. Uh, He's been sent up for a killing in Alabama and Eddie is the lawyer who tries to get him free. Now, we talk about his current routine and the ideal one that he can't quite figure out. Uh, Also, what makes crime writers completely different from each other and why, in some instances, he thinks he's stood out over the last few years. Uh, We talk about why he's tried to be a plotter, but will always return to his pantsing roots. And we chat about the first idea that he had for the book, uh, because it comes from something he read about the death penalty and the people in the southern states of America that make the decision, the prosecutors who send them away. It is a staggering statistic. It's a ridiculous fact. I don't, you won't believe it. It's coming up with Steve Kavanagh. We get into it how we always do with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Ah, well, I'm in my my office, which I, we have in our our new house. I say new house. We've been here, you know, a year and a half now, but I have a big um, a desktop computer um, beyond that, and it's sort of faced into the corner of the room. 
Uh, there's a window on my left. There I have some art on the walls, so I have stills from Silence of the Lambs. Uh, a few Hitchcock posters from Shadow of a Doubt and Strangers on a Train and Hitchcock himself. I have an Ivor Marlatsky uh, photograph of Manhattan. And I also have a poster that was made of my book 13, which sort of looms over at me, looking at me. Uh, the desk, I have a banker's lamp, green lamp on the desk, and notebooks and fighting pens. And behind me, there's a printer, and behind me are bookshelves. And that's that's my office. So there's a lot of inspiration there. Have you got a window that looks out onto any glorious scene? Well, the window looks out um, over uh, just we're sort of in like a little private end of a, a of a uh, development. So looks out over a nice like Narnia esque lamppost um, on the other side of my driveway and a hedge. But beyond that, there's fields because we're right in the country. So it's it's a nice view. So there's a lot to inspire you going on. They just you run me. So you you have run me through the the posters on your wall. You've got the Hitchcocks. You've got the Silence of the Lambs. What is it about those that – why are those on your walls, I guess, is the question. Why have you chosen those and what are they doing to your creativity? I don't know if I ever read too much into the choice of posters. I'm just curious. Yeah, I don't know. I think some of them are just cool posters. I'm a big Hitchcock fan, um, so it's nice. It's nice to have them there and I think they look cool. Um, uh, My wife bought them for me um, and – you know, they mean something. Silence of the Lambs was one of the first crime novels, I, the first crime novel I ever read when I was about 11. So that book has a particular significance for me. And it's a, it's a framed print of Lecter uh, in the in the mask, and he's strapped into the gurney as well. So um, he's just staring at me with his crazy eyes. But sometimes I stare back at him with crazy eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Reading Silence of the Lambs when you're 11, how much do you remember about how much that piqued your interest in, in crime and in thrillers and in, in kind of the macabreness of these stories? Oh, hugely, hugely, you know. But before that, I was a big reader, but I'd never read anything like that. And I loved it. I loved the pace of it. I loved the cleverness of it it's a really clever book um not only in its construction but in its themes and how the characters work together um and it was you know it was scary as well and i i just i loved it uh, and that that was it i remember reading it vividly it was a huge influence in, on me and after that i read you know red dragon and i went on from there to read to, to read as much crime as i could um fiction you know i never read too much um Nonfiction and crime. I, I love those those stories of, of you know it's 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 classic good and evil, isn't it really? Um, but it's set in our you know the modern world world that you recognise. And I was particularly drawn to American crime fiction because I just loved America since I was a wee lad watching Hill Street Blues and Starsky and Hutch and TV, and these were like that in book form, but only better. So I I and I loved reading about America. It seemed like a, an amazing you know truly you know land of of dreams type place to me um everything just looked you know the cars and the people and the clothes and the buildings and uh, it's just an incredibly romantic place it looked like compared to where i was in belfast i'm glad that you've mentioned america because a, a, a little later i want to try and uh, like unpack your you know your love of america and your stories which is not something that many authors particularly here from the uk and particularly from ireland and northern ireland kind of focus on so i i I do want to touch on that now there's a lot of inspiration around you what is there that's practical for your writing is there a um like a like a whiteboard is there post-it notes strewn all over the place a plan something that just lets you know where you're going no unfortunately that's the one thing i don't have and i have never had it as a plan um so i don't outline anything before i write I have lots of notebooks, and I, I, as I love stationery and pens, um, it's sort of developed into a bit of a hobby. So I, I use uh, like term nineteen seventeen uh, A five notebooks, and I have a small collection of fighting pens, which I like because before I, I don't plot anything out, but there are bits, there are times where I get stuck or I don't know what's going to happen, and I will open a notebook, and I will write. 
And it is kind of me having a conversation with myself almost, you know, what happens here and what could happen and where are we and is there a better way of describing something? Because I think when I pick up a pen and I write, it's a different part of my brain that's working for me anyway. And I was, you know, was writing so much in notebooks, I was getting hand cramps. So I thought, well, I'll switch. I'll try fighting pens because you don't really need to apply any pressure to the page at all. It's a much more pleasurable experience. So I, I really like fighting pens now and these notebooks. And it's this is me working out the book in these in these notebooks, and I enjoy doing it immensely. And it's you know writing with a nice pen, and they're not very expensive, is a very pleasurable experience for me anyway. So I. I enjoy doing that, but I don't plot anything out. I will start with a very basic idea. Um, what if this happened? And then I will try and think of a, an opening for the book. Where would be the best place for the story to start? And then I will go from there. And that's really all I've ever had, really, when starting a novel. So it's an exploration of the of the book as I go along and these notebooks, and they help with that. Well, I'm curious to find out how they help with it. You, you kind of described the, the conversations that you have in the notebook when you're a bit stuck uh, and you're asking yourself questions. How easily do the answers come to you when you're writing it in the notebook? And also, uh, is there a case that you're just kind of, when you are stuck and you're asking these questions of yourself, you're just kind of settling for the first thing that happens or are you, you kind of thinking, well, that could happen, but also maybe we could do this with it and this with it and this with it. Yeah, I mean, there is that. Um, I think once you actually ask yourself a question, you will get an answer, um, which is a weird thing, you know, but if you're stuck and you just think, I'm stuck, you're not actually fixing the problem. What I'm trying to do is say, well, there is a problem here. What is the answer? And that's what I'm exploring. And there will be different options and things, different things that will happen. Um, but I'll know when I hit upon the right one that, okay, this is the way for this to go. Um, so, for example, uh, there's a book of mine, 13, which was my, my breakout book in the UK. And there's a, a particular problem in that book. There's a dollar bill, which is a, a, a part of the evidence in a trial. And on that dollar bill, the dollar bill was found in the victim's throat. And on that dollar bill, there's DNA from the person on trial, but there's also DNA from somebody else. And this person was executed um, in a prison uh, some, some years before the actual dollar bill was printed. At the time when I wrote that, I didn't know how that person's DNA got on the dollar bill. I just thought that's an interesting problem. I knew I would find a solution and there's different ways that it could happen. So uh, there were lots of different explanations for that, but I knew when I hit upon the right one, okay, that's that's the explanation. And normally it's the simplest one, but it takes a wee while and some thought to get there. Just to backtrack from that further, when did the idea that the DNA on the dollar bill would, that was actually from before it was printed when did that come to you? Like, how much of a oh wow, how much of an oh wow moment was that? Oh, it was good, but I, I liked. I thought that's very that's a really interesting problem because they had um, parts of thirteen were a bit of a homage to to Silence of the Lambs as well. So the the dollar bill was folded into the shape of a butterfly, and that was found in this victim's throat. So I thought, well, it can't just be you know, fold it up. Yeah, that's creepy, but there has to be something, some evidence in here for the trial and some kind of a mystery. And what would be really good? Oh, that would be good. And But that happened as I was writing it. So I, that was not planned out in advance. Before I wrote that page, I hadn't thought of that before. That's the way it, it works for me. It's quite organic. I try not to plan stuff out. I'd love to try. I have tried before to plan stuff out and it didn't really work. It's, it seems always better in the moment as I'm writing. These things come to me. Why didn't it work? I don't know. I find it very hard to plan out how uh, something will turn in a story in advance. I just, my brain doesn't work that way. I like to try and find the story and find the characters as I'm writing it and create problems. What what form of planning did, did, did it take when you gave it a stab? How did you, how did you plan? 
I sort of, again, I went to my, my notebook and I thought, okay, well, what could happen here? Who, and who are the characters? And the, none of the characters really felt real to me, apart from some of the ones that I'd written before. And uh, I just couldn't plan out what could what could possibly happen. It just didn't come to me. And whatever ideas I had didn't feel you know, real. So it's just, it just, my brain just doesn't work that way. I just, I, for me, it's much easier and it's much more exciting to be able to write it, you know, to make it all up as I go along. You know, some people say, well, I wait for the muse to come to me and all this stuff, or I wait for characters to talk to me. And I'm like, no, it's, it's, I make it all up as I go along. That's what I really mean. That's how it works for me. I once spoke to the, um, crime writing legend uh, Anne Cleves for the story and she said something very similar for the podcast rather she said something very similar uh, she was kind of like well why would I want to have to read my book twice what why what uh, like when I write the story I want to find this out as the reader finds out why would I dream up a killing first yes exactly um Anne's a very good writer and, and very she's been doing this for a long time and she's great so yeah, I mean that's the way I work. But the, the the drawback of that is sometimes you do get stuck, and you don't know what happens next. And that's you know when I go to my notebooks and think, okay, what would be a good thing to do here? And just very anally, uh, you mentioned you very specifically mentioned the notebooks. Um, why is it always those notebooks? I don't know. I mean, I have different various notebooks, but I like the I like the paper quality of these ones. And uh, there's lots of pages, and the pages are numbered. So, for example, the book I'm working on at the moment, um, I have I, so I can have an index at the front of it. So there's you know there's 50 pages of research in the book, and that's because I know there'll be a, something technical or a, a profession or something I need to know about, um, and I do all that research. Sometimes I have to stop writing and go and do research. Um, and it will have at different pages, you know, okay, I've had an idea. I'll come back to this and it's all cross-referenced. It, it makes no sense to anyone else but me, but it's it's all there for me. There's a little bit of a an aid memoir as to what I've written already and what could possibly happen. So I'm planning it all out very slightly in advance as I go along. Like I know what, once I finish the chapter, I know what the next chapter should be usually. Um, uh, so yeah it's not a great way of writing a book I don't recommend it to anyone if you can plan it all out in advance do that that's much more professional well my writing routine has changed dramatically over the course of my career when I started out writing I wrote at night um, because I was a full-time lawyer so I would um, come home from a full day's work and you know see the family and the kids and Everyone go to bed about 10 o'clock, half 10. And then I that's when my writing day started. And I wrote for three or four hours a night, um, most nights. And that was me. Um, uh, but you can't do that, I don't think, for very long. I did it for, you know, um, about seven or eight years. And then I had to stop. And thankfully, the books had been successful enough where I could make that leap and go full-time writing. Um, and I did that, and <clears throat> we were still living in a small house, and I didn't want to be, you know, at my kitchen table, which is where I wrote, um, getting under anyone's feet. So I would take myself off to coffee shops and I would or libraries, and I would write for three or four hours during the day, and then a bit more at night time, and that was my routine. Now I'm in my own. I've everything I've ever wanted. I'm in my own office in my own house, uh, but it's COVID. So the, you know, the kids you know, were off school for huge portions of time and the world's kind of going crazy. So I've, I've yet to find a really good routine here. I will try and get, you know, three or four hours during the day. The time at which that happens varies. And I will, again, try and get another few hours at night. And again, the time when that happens varies. So I'm not, I don't have, I haven't found my rhythm yet really in here because of all, everything that's been going on. So what would you like your rhythm to be if you've not found the the perfect routine for your current situation? And, you know, fingers crossed in the next few months, things might go back to as they were. Um, what rhythm would you like your writing day to take? Oh, I'd love to get up in the morning, you know, get all the kids to school, come back home 
and write, if an ideal world, I would get up at 5.30 and have, you know, two hours under my belt before anyone else got up. But I'm I'm not good in the morning. Um, and I've learned that. I've tried to do that a few times, but my brain doesn't work well in the morning. Uh, even after, you know, four or five cups of coffee, it just it just doesn't doesn't happen for me so uh, i will you know get the kids to school come back three or four hours go and get the kids do everything that i have to do in my family life and then at night time maybe another hour or two at night that would be my ideal routine i could work quite happily there in the in the hours that you're managing to get done at the moment how productive are you being is is there a form of word i know you you're you are unplanned at that point is there a form of word count what are you happy with getting done um i try to be happy with if i can get a thousand words i'm happy sometimes it's only 500 words sometimes it's 2000 words um i try not to be a too too much of a stickler um if i've started a, you know a day in 21000 words and whatever and many hundreds if i if that clock moves over to 22000 words that's a good day I'm moving that number forward. So uh, to me, it's more about the quality of what I'm getting done. Uh, I think that's more important, and I tend to focus more on that. Um, if it's if, if it's as good, a good number, you know, great. But if it's something quality or I've had an idea, that's a good writing day too. So I try not to beat myself up about it too much. Um, you know, I am working and putting in the hours, and as long as that little number ticks over, great, that's a great day. In the first draft process, how I mean, you just said that it's quality over quantity, but how perfect do those words need to be on the page when you write them for the first time? Um, uh, they're, they're never exactly perfect, of course. But what I do is I tend to spin my wheels at the start of a book. So I'll write the first chapter and I could maybe do that in a day or two. And then I'll go back and I will rewrite that for the next three or four days. And it's the same then with chapter two and chapter three or whatever it is. So I will be going back over my work quite a bit. And then when I have, you normally when I have about 5,000 words, I can go on then and my momentum will take me on up to about 20,000 words. And then I will flounder and I will have a couple of days where I'm not writing anything, a couple of hundred words or I'm stuck. And that I've learned is my trigger to stop, go back and rewrite those 20,000 words, maybe once or twice. And once I've done that, then I feel like I have a solid base here. There's a solid base for a book. Act one, if you like, or most of act one is kind of there and pretty solid. That's a base to go forward then and make lots of new mistakes in act two. So that's that's kind of how it, it works with me. I don't, I've realized this over writing a number of books, this is how my process, and that's a very loose word um, for what I do, that's kind of how my process works. When you're fine tuning that first 5,000 words, what is that doing to your understanding of the story? How much do you think that's affecting the idea that you had for it, if you're constantly going over and going over and going over the, the, the very start of things, do you, how much of an impact do you think that has for the rest of how you tell this book? Oh, huge, huge. Um, and it really helps me get and find the characters. Um, because if I, once I find those characters and you know, there's new characters in every book, um, and once I find them, and I kind of know them, and I really only learn about them by writing about them and putting them in different situations and seeing what they would do. And once I've got, it allows me to know them more, and that helps with plot then, because if I know who that character is, I will know what they will think, I will know how they will act, I know the next steps that they will take to whatever they're going to do. And that helps me write the story. So I'm really, what I'm doing that is finding, I'm finding the characters. I'm not too worried about grammar, really, because I will always write, I will always think uh, faster than I can type. So there's my problem with my drafts is there's lots of missing words from sentences where I think I've written the full sentence, but I haven't, I've missed out one or two words um, because I'm typing that fast and thinking that fast. 
um, and my typing skills are not as good as as my as my thinking. Um, so that's that's I'm not too worried about that. It's mostly the characters and the story and it's getting the place right and uh, building up a good sense of who these people are and what they're doing. And that then should lead to the rest of the story and establishing what these characters want, what they're doing, um, and that helps. How many books have you published now, Steve? Is it, am, am I making it seven? Yeah, seven books now. When the Devil's Advocate's out today, so that's that's my seventh book. The sixth Eddie Flynn novel and my seventh book. Well, I mean, I know that publication day, when you're allowed to do you know, in previous times, it was quite a momentous occasion. You'd go in to your uh, offices and you'd get champagne. You may maybe go out for a little publication lunch. Uh, what's it like when you're at home and you can't really do much of that? Um, you know, it's okay. I, 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 for me, it's all right. Um, uh, I'm doing like a virtual launch thing tonight and that's fun. Uh, so I'll be able to, you know, interact a little bit with readers and social media is great now because people, you know, people are sending me lots of pictures of the book. They've just gone out and bought it. Um, and that's all good to see as well. But, uh, no, I was never a huge one for big celebrations. It's nice, but, um, I'm not missing that. Um, really, I'm, I'm, I'm quite okay to be sat at home, uh, for these things. So seven books in what I'm like, what's the, uh, I guess, what's the long-form process of having an idea for the book? In effect, what's the writing routine of a year? Uh, because now you've... And also, your, your books have been celebrated so far. I mean, they've won awards. They, they're all bestsellers. Uh, when you've finished one story, how much time do you give yourself to just rest, recuperate? When are you thinking of an idea for the next one? How long will you give your, that idea to percolate before you start writing that first sentence? Just talk us through that. Normally when I'm doing, you know, the second uh, draft or third draft of the book uh, that I'm working on, I will already have had a couple of ideas for the next one um, because I, st- I, start, I start doing that then. That's good. It spurs me on to finish these drafts and to make them as good as I can before I show them to anyone. Um, and it makes me because then I, I have an impetus because I've got a new idea that I'm excited about that I want to get writing. Um, and in terms of coming up with ideas, it's me, you know, sitting at a desk thinking what it, what could happen, what's the worst thing that could happen, or talking with my wife who's brilliant with ideas, and we will discuss well, what if this happened, what if that happened, or she has great ideas as well. So, um, and in terms of a gap, uh. I will I invariably almost sort of working on two books because when I send off a book um, to my agent, I'll, he'll have notes and there'll be drafts to do re- redrafts and rewrites um, there. And when I'm in between times of setting that off, then I'll start the new book. So in terms of the biggest gap I've had between books, I would say probably about two or three weeks where I've not been, you know, starting that new book. I've been, you know, working on the idea or just um, taking some time off, having the idea there and just taking a wee bit of time off, but it's very little time off. Normally I'm just, I'm working all the time. Now, it's really hard because of the way that authors write and because you publish one book and you've, you're probably halfway through writing another book and you can't really remember which one you're meant to be talking about. There's all of that stuff. But when you've written so many, when you've written award-winning books, you know, Gold, Crime Rights Association, Gold Dagger Award, the Theakston Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year, That's is that the one up in Harrogate? Yes. So written award-winning books, at what point do you start to feel the pressure that not just the readers who have been with you from the start, but also new people are going to be expecting something from your book. There's a new Steve Kavanagh novel on the shelves and this guy's an award winner. I'm expecting big things. When do you start to feel that pressure? All the time. But the pressure comes from me. Um, Once I've finished a book, I I want the next one to be better. I want it to be better written. Um, I want to to try and do something new with it. Um, not just a new story, but to try and use new storytelling techniques um, uh, and make just make it all together a much better experience than the last book. 
Um, I'm not pressure comes from me and, and me alone. Um, no one else puts pressure on me for it. And the consequence, I think, is that, and I'm sure it's the same for, for all writers, is you know, the more books you write, the harder it gets. It doesn't get any easier. Yes, you picked up some skills from the writing the last one, and you, you know, you've learned a few tricks. But the whole thing is is new again. You know, someone I can't remember which writer said, "You never learn how to write uh, a book. You only ever learn how to write the book that you're writing." So I'm trying to do something new all the time: new characters, different narrative techniques. Um, and because uh, uh, I, I want to do, I think it's important for me to learn something and to try and get better all the time with every book, with every chapter. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. We're back with more from Steve in just a sec. If you've learned anything so far in the show or in the almost 200 episodes now that has helped the way that you tell your stories, the way that you get your words down, uh, you can let us know and say thank you to us over at Patreon. By backing us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine, you get access to merch, to even more bonus content. You'll always get our everlasting thanks. And there is a chance for your book to sponsor the show. And it doesn't take a lot, honestly, just a dollar or so a month, a couple of dollars. It helps us keep going. It helps us keep bringing you these chats as often as we can. We've got a brand new chat every Friday. That's how things are working at the moment. And then we revisit some of the best episodes and best guests of the past as well. Just to give you a little bonus bit of inspiration halfway through the week if it's helped you at all you can say thanks to us uh, by pledging and becoming a backer at patreon.com forward slash writers routine let's get back to it then with steve kavanagh a multi-award winning crime author uh, we're talking about his, ne- his new book the devil's advocate uh, and in this half we chat more about that about eddie flynn and how much he knows about eddie's journey after this story also about his love of america and why steve sets his stories there so far away from where he actually lives and we pick things up talking about development i mean steve's a hugely successful author we've heard and spoken about that already uh, he's won many awards how much is he still trying to learn and grow as a writer I mean, I'm largely self-taught, but I'm always reading books on craft. Um, and there's always new new ones coming out, um, which are really helpful, and you'll learn something from that. I watch um, the Masterclass um, programs. There's a website called Masterclass. Well, are they, um, are they, are there's so many, by the, sorry to cut in, that I've wanted yeah. to watch. Like, I've wanted to watch... David Baldacci, he's been on there. He's taught writing. Penn and Teller have taught magic. Gordon Ramsay doing cooking. Yeah. Are, 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 you, are you getting a lot from them? Sure, huge amount. So there's Neil Gaiman, which is a brilliant, brilliant one. It's very encouraging. Um, that one, I really got a lot from that. And there's Walter Mosley, who's fantastic as well. There's James Patterson, which is great. Um, there's a load. There's loads of writers. There's Dan Brown. Um, and you can watch something and think, well, yeah, I wouldn't do it that way. But I can see where they're coming from when there's something interesting there. You'll always get something out of that. 
that and writing books or reading books about craft and uh, reading you know, fiction generally. You know, you'll read something great and you'll think, oh, that was brilliant. Um, I wonder, could I do something like that? Very different and, and maybe do it in my own way. You know, you'll read a little narrative trick that someone's pulled off in a book or you'll read a sentence and you'll think, oh, that that's really that's really worked in the rhythm of how that whole page is set up. It all leads to that punch. So you're learning all the time. One of the most common like maxims of authors is the classic, write what you know. Now, uh, your stories with Eddie Flynn, and you kind of, you've touched on your love of America. The new one, The Devil's Advocate, it's, a lot of it's in Alabama. I guess, and maybe you know about this more than I give you credit for, which yeah, and I apologize for that. But why are you not writing what you know? Why are you doing something very unusual, I think, for a crime writer, an English, uh, sorry, a crime writer from Great Britain and, and Ireland? And, and why are you saying it over there? Eddie's a lawyer, and I was a civil rights lawyer, you know, for 20 years. Um, but I didn't, when I started writing, I thought that I would have something to say about trials and lawyers and uh, I thought I could say something that no one had done before and show people how this really works, especially the the psychological um, and verbal warfare that happens in a courtroom, how that really works. And I didn't want to come home from being a lawyer in Northern Ireland and write about another lawyer in Northern Ireland. So, um, my and, and I love American crime fiction. And there were writers who inspired me, so Lee Child and John Connolly all write American crime fiction. Lee's from Birmingham, John's from Dublin. So I thought, well, if these guys can do it, it's possible then for me to do it. Um, it's at least it's at least possible. It has been done before. Now, John and Lee are incredibly talented guys, so I, you know, the bar was set very high. But it, it meant that, that, that there was a template there, a rough template. You could do it. And... I just, uh, that, that uh, it made it more exciting for me and hopefully more exciting for the reader setting it in, in, in New York. Um, uh, and, you know, the books, you know, some of the books are, are twisted as a standalone that's set somewhere else. Um, uh, the new one, The Devil's Advocate, is in Alabama. So, um, but I've been to Alabama twice, uh, so I have, a, I have a rough sense of the place. But um, so all of that, all of that helps. And I love writing about America. It's just an incredible country. It's an incredible experiment of a country. How important is it for you to make your version of America as authentic as it is to the real one? And, and how are you researching that? Well, I cheat um, is the plain thing. Uh, I wrote the first three Eddie Flynn novels, which were all set in New York, without ever having been to America. Um, so, uh, they are set in New York for a reason. If I said to someone, you know, if you said New York to someone, anyone, you know, of my generation, and I'm sure, you know, above and below immediately has a mental image of that city, quite a detailed one, because we've watched it for years on TV. Um, if I said to you, you know, you know, I don't know, uh, Philadelphia, you may not have such a great idea of what that city looks like um, or, or, you know, or Arkansas or somewhere like this, but everyone knows New York. So everyone already has a mental picture. All I have to do is to give them a bit more of a sense of that and to enhance what their own image of it is anyway. Um, so it means I don't need to make a great deal of, um, of, take a great deal of time in describing that city because they know it already intimately. So, this has been an amalgam of ideas, The Devil's Advocate. Um, I always wanted to write a death penalty case. I always wanted to write a book twitching on racism in America and its relationship with the justice system because that's something very personal to me. I was a civil rights lawyer in Northern Ireland and I did race discrimination cases. Um, so that was always something I was desperate to do from when I first started writing. Uh, the idea for this came from a few places. One was an article I'd read about district attorneys in Lafayette County, uh, where when you've done your first death penalty case, the senior district attorney will give you a gift, which you, it's, an, it's, a, it's a paperweight which sits on your desk in the shape of the electric chair. 
uh, and that really happens. They have a sign, you know, when there's an execution, they put a sign up in the office frying tonight. Um, and I did more research into it and discovered that the death penalty is driven entirely by personalities in the States. There are five prosecutors who have sent 440 people to death row. Um, these five pro prosecutors account for almost 20% of the total death row population of the United States. These people live and breathe to send people to their death. And that was terrifying to me. And it fed into the idea of the 2%, uh, this military theory, which was uh, it started after World War II. They found there was a lot of soldiers didn't actually, you know, point their guns at the enemy and fire. There was a very small percentage of people who were psychopaths and who kept everyone else alive. And the, there was a, a survey done about why people joined the military. And lots of people say, well, I joined up for education or opportunity or a job or to travel. And there was a very small percentage of people um, who signed up to the military because they wanted to kill someone. And I thought, well, those people are out there. You could join the military or you become a district attorney in a death penalty state and you'd be able to do that. So that was the genesis for this book. And what happens next? You, you need to get... You, you said that you, you look at the beginning of it. So how much do you think about things before you sit there and type out your first sentence? I try and think about who this character is and what their motivations are and their psychology. So the, the district attorney in this, in this book, Randall Korn, is very much driven by power. That's his, that's his thing. That's his psychological drive. Um, and once I find that, then I, it's just a, uh, everything else is kind of window dressing. You know, there will be someone accused of a crime. Um, and in this case, a young African-American that Corn is going to try and kill. Um, but he is innocent. Yet Corn and the, the corrupt uh, police force around him have convinced the entire town that, that this young man is, is guilty. And then it's a question of how does Eddie get involved? So this um, this character, Andy Dubois, had a lawyer who has now gone missing. And someone gets in touch with Eddie and says that he has to go and help out this, this kid. So him and the whole team then go down to Alabama to try and fight this case against impossible odds. And on the underbelly of all of that is the rise in white supremacy in the United States, um, which I think was always there. But Trump kind of gave permission for these people to do this in the open. I don't think he created it. He didn't help it, and he may have enhanced it. But he kind of, he, I think he just opened a big Pandora's box with lots of things that he said. And lots of people said, yeah, I feel that way too. I always have. I never said it. I'm going to say it now. So that that's the big boiling pot of stuff for this book. Um and it was, you know, it was a real pleasure to write this. I've been wanting to write this one for a long time. And I really, I really had a good time doing it. Not planning anything. Quite often writers on the show will describe their book a little bit like a, a road trip. Uh, how much do you know about the route that you that you took on the road trip of this story? As in, you, you figured out where you were starting from. Uh, at what point did you find out where you'd stop the car, where you'd end it? There is a there is a very rough skeleton to the 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 Eddie Flynn books. There will be a crime. Um, Eddie will get involved. He will try to find out what's really happening. There will be a trial, and at the end of the trial, the book finishes. That's my skeleton, which I can follow. But in terms of putting all of the flesh and the muscles and bones and into all of that to get it up and moving, that happens again largely as I'm writing it. Because um, I've got that internal, very rough internal structure in my head. Uh, anything else, you know, everything else just flows flows into that. And, and how much do you concern yourself with, if you've got that skeleton in place with trying to make, you, you know, your seventh uh, a reader's seventh reading of an Ellie, Eddie Flynn trial different from the, the, the first time they saw him in court. Well, there'll be different circumstances, obviously, to the cases. But one of the things that I, I like to do um, is to take an analytical eye to forensic science. 
in lots of crime books and in lots of crime television, you know, like there's CS, there's CSI everywhere now. There's CSI Miami, CSI Bournemouth, whatever, you know, those programs are huge. And they're great. You know, I watch them myself, but I do sort of laugh out loud a little bit at them sometimes because uh, there's lots of flawed thinking involved from the scientists and from the general public. Um, that, you know, once someone has got a fingerprint or DNA, well, that's the case finished, but it's not at all. And a lot of these so-called you know, forensic practices aren't scientific at all. Um, the likes of blood spatter analysis really has no basis in science whatsoever. Um, and uh, I like to take a forensic, take a forensic discipline and say, how would that fit into this? And what can I do to open people's eyes, open people's eyes to all of this, so they can see how this really works, so they can understand? No, this is not science. Or here are the flaws in this process. As I think people learn something from that, then it's it's good fun for me too. Now, many crime writers tend to you know pick and choose which characters they're going to talk about they make new series all the time they've got so many different uh people that they can pick from you're quite a few into eddie flynn now what is it about him that keeps drawing you back and and um uh, how much do you know about their story uh, completely like 10 books down the line do you know what's going to happen no i have no idea what's going to happen in the next book um uh, you know, because of the of the stories he's been through, and he's you know has, has, has been through. Um, he's a scarred character now, physically and and emotionally. Um, I like him because he he doesn't give up, and he he will always stand up for someone um, who's innocent, no matter what the personal cost is to Eddie. And I think that's a universal you know, um, theme in, in a lot of crime fiction. There will be someone who will say, no, this is not right, and I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to say no. And, and that uh, I, I fuels me. He's uh, funny. He, he has a brilliant way of thinking, which I love writing. And, of course, um, Eddie, as a con, former con artist and now trial lawyer, um, has a brilliant way of balancing the skills of, a, of justice in a trial by not playing fair, by not abiding by the rules and by always doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. And that gives me a huge amount of pleasure in writing. Now, lastly, and this is, I'm going to ask you to get quite self-analytical and it's a question that I imagine you probably won't like answering, but just bear with. Now, there are quite a lot of crime and thriller and, and st- uh, those types of books on the shelves. I think very few authors are as consistently award-winning as, as you have been recently. Uh, what is it about the way that you write, do you think, that makes you slightly different from other crime writers? Well, we're all different. Um, uh, we all have a, have a skill. Um, I'm reading um, uh, The Dying Place, uh, Vasim Khan's new book. And he um, he has a beautiful warmth to his writing. When you're reading that book, it's like the story's being told to you by a very dear friend, and that's something I could never do. Um, I can't. I I don't have that that real warmth in everything that I write. And there's real heart in my books, and that's what I try and and, and put in. And if people connect with them, brilliant. But, you know, in terms of, of awards, you know, the books that I've been shortlisted with are all fantastic. And I think you know, there's a good deal of luck involved in that. Um, and when, in terms of what people uh, like about my books, I think people like people like the characters in my books. I think people like Eddie. And I think that that helps a lot. It does a lot of heavy lifting. Lee Child once told me a story about how he knew he was kind of on to something with Jack Reacher. He was in a bookstore and uh, signing some books and the bookstore owner said to him, well, you know, you're doing really well. I'm selling a lot of your books. And he says, that's amazing. Uh, he says, and is that you? You're, you're telling people about them? He says, no, no, people are coming in and asking for them. And he said, people come in and ask for Lee Child books? And the store owner said, no. 
they come in and they ask for Jack Reacher books. As I think readers fall in love with characters instead of writers. And um, I've been very lucky that people like Eddie Flynn. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you to Steve Kavanagh for coming on the show. Now, I'm not going to say you can get a copy of his book wherever you listen to the podcast. Uh, I've realised that I'm going to take a step away from uh, the Amazon affiliate scheme. How noble of me. No, no. Uh, I, I just haven't quite worked out how I can do that and support independent bookshops while I still get a kickback. I know that's a bit selfish, but, you know, needs must, need to make a living. If you did enjoy the show, go and buy it from an independent local bookshop. Support local books, I would say. Uh, next week, we are with the author Helen Paris talking about her debut book. It's a book club read. That's what it's billed as. It's called Lost Property, and it's all about memories of the past being held in special items. Uh, it's a it's a really warm-hearted tale. She'll tell us all about it next week. In the meantime, you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Give us a follow on Twitter here at writers pod. You can get in touch with the show as well at writersroutine.com. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week with Helen Paris on the show. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.